Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Happy Wednesday. How is everybody doing out there today? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn. Thank you very much for tuning in with us here today. As always, Mr. Jeff Gannon, how's it going over there? It's going great, Andrew. How's it going with you? It is going fantastic. And as always, we hope it's going fantastic for everyone else. Uh, Before we jump into the podcast, I want to ask a favor of everybody listening. Okay. And that's to go to your podcast app, if Mm -hmm. that's where you are listening to us on here today, and to give us a rating and a review. Okay. People always say thank you very much for the podcast. Uh-huh. So this is my this is my ask. That's it's, how they can thank us is rate and review the podcast. Yes, and which that's how iTunes works. It helps us get the message out a little bit more, and that will be great. Also, if you do want to follow us on Twitter, my Twitter is at Focused Compound, and Jeff's is at Jeff Gannon G E O F F Gannon, um, and that's where you can find us. Jeff tweets. 10 times more than I do, right? <laughs> if you're going to follow one, follow Focus Compound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Def doesn't tweet that much, but you can follow us both and it's a lot of fun. So today we're going to be talking about um, this concept called deep work. Yes. And uh, speaking of Twitter, which is probably the opposite of Twitter. Twitter is shallow work. Yeah. yeah. Twitter's mentioned in the book. <laughs> yeah. Deep right. work. I forget who it was that tweeted. I thought it was funny. He's like, I'm, I don't know what the opposite of meditation looks like, but I'm pretty sure it's Twitter. That's, right. <laughs> I, mean, I thought that too. was That's great. Right. Yeah. Um, but so there's this concept called deep work, which we've talked about a lot to always look to strive and, and I guess to improve on. And, I think the concept came from the book that was written by Cal Newport. I think yeah, definitely the term deep work comes from that book. Yeah, by Cal Newport. And I mean, deep work, I mean, what does it actually, I guess, mean to you and how do you sort of think about it? But I, to me, it's just really improving your attention span and really just having pure focus, I okay, guess you yeah. could say, and whatever yeah. it is that you're trying to do. Yeah. So the concept has been talked about before as like flow, right? Mm-hmm. So pushing yourself to the limit in terms of focusing on something that's uh, challenging, pushing yourself as far as you can go in how you, uh, how hard you're focusing on the concept at the time. So what we're not talking about is repetitive stuff that you can do mindlessly. This is giving all of your focus to the to the idea at the time. So like reading a 10K is probably the um, best example of deep work that an investor will do, right? Because it's the thing that they're most likely to be focused on that's difficult at the time they're doing it, stretching them to, to really understand what they're reading and everything like that versus some things that are more looking around for an idea, reading different message boards, reading Twitter, looking for things. You know, there's a lot of stuff that could be a lot more shallow work. Not So we're talking about things for investing, I think, that's focused on one stock and one thing about that stock. And you're sort of alone with it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you've, you've talked to me, I don't think we've talked about it on the podcast before, but what you'll typically do is you'll kind of break out what you want to get done mm-hmm. and you'll say like Alexa set a timer for yeah. 90 minutes or whatever it is. And right. you just focus on that sole thing for 90 minutes nonstop. Right. 
to learn it is whatever it is that you want you set out to learn yeah i actually restrict the amount of time to increase the amount of focus on it yeah yeah because like for example let's say you're studying a company let's say you re- you read the 10k yesterday and you're like mm-hmm. okay i want to take an, uh, another step forward you have a bunch of questions you'll kind of break it out okay monday i'm going to look into maybe the proxy same or like learn about management right. yes. or whatever you don't kind of shock on it you no. sort of yeah it's much of- better doing short batches of work that you're really focused because what people will do is, Oh, I can read the 10 K while I'm doing whatever else while I'm sitting there. I can take four hours because I just am sitting around here watching TV or doing this or also surfing the internet at the same time, whatever. And yeah, you can do that, but you don't get the same thing out of it as if you go, okay, well I'm going to use 90 minutes. You know, you go see a movie. They're not shorter than 90 minutes. So if you can focus on a movie for 90 minutes, you can focus on a 10 K for 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. Sure. And you've also talked about before how, when you do read a 10 K, um, you reserve sort of one day for just only one 10 K. Like you don't read multiple in a day. Right. That's really important. And I actually talked about a little bit in the book too, is they talk about like attention residue of like switching tasks from one thing to another. So you're trying to do something really important and then you stop doing that and do something else. Right. So if you're doing, uh, if you think you're going to do a couple 10 Ks in a day, let's say, or a couple different stocks in a day, actually you're thinking somewhat about the one that you know is coming up and you're thinking about the one that you just did instead of thinking today is just the day that we do this spinoff or whatever. Yeah. I think that's important that you focus mm-hmm. with the idea. You can do other kinds of work like the shallow work they talk about, I think fits well nicely around that. But if you just get one really good focusing session in, in a day, that's going to be more than enough for investors certainly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how do you sort of structure, I guess your day, maybe that if other people want to replicate it, if you, or how Ta- would you stress oriented. it? How would you structure it? How would you structure it um, for somebody that's looking to, I guess, become a better investor? Yeah. Well, for people coming to, to become a better investor, I say the same thing all the time to them, which is probably like it's the one that's most effective, but the one they're least likely to do, which is take whatever schedule you have now, uh, get up earlier or get to the office earlier and just spend an hour or 90 minutes or whatever um, without other people around. Because the biggest thing that most people have that's a problem is that they have other people around them at the time that they think they're going to be doing this. And that just causes problems. So, yeah, I think that's the if you add a little if you. Yeah, that's a really good way of doing it. So like um, uh, a lot of people that I know who picked up some other thing that they wanted to learn did it by going in early to the office. Really? Yeah, that's how they did it. That's interesting. And that was their time to do it for like, because... It's kind of like Munger saying who's my most important client and he said it was himself. So Mm -hmm. he realized he was going to sell or he said he's going to sell like an hour a day to himself. Yeah, almost every writer that I've ever talked to where they had to write and have a day job did either lunch or go into the office before and do it. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting because I guess the whole concept of deep work or concentration or attention span, mm-hmm. whatever word you want to use, um, it's it's I guess more interesting now than it's ever been because there's just so many distractions. It's a lot harder than when I started investing. There's yeah. so many notifications. There's mm-hmm. so many. I mean, you think about like Warren, right, or yeah. Charlie, or all these older investors who, you know, had their whole lives where there was no technology. Pretty mm-hmm. much. I mean, how old was Warren when I guess a computer became a thing or cell phones became a thing? Right, you know, pretty old in his investing life. It's like he had so many years of true focus and true deep work mm-hmm. to learn. Where it's almost like I wonder if he was able to learn a lot more than other people in our generation yeah. will be able to or could be able to because there's just so many more distractions. If you're not obviously conscious of yeah. it, yeah. Now for this, we are of two different generations because I started investing at really the best time, which was the internet had been invented. Okay. Why do you think that was the best time? Well, the early days of the internet were great. It's the later days of the internet that became a problem. <laughs> now, the early days of the internet were great because it was hard to find anything. It, no, nothing was intuitive. 
It was very hard to find anything, but ever all the information in the world was up there. You just had to find out how to get it. But it wasn't really coming to you. You had to go out and get it. Then they made it good for everyone to use. So in the early days of the internet, it was not something that your dad could use. All right. But now it's something that everyone uses and that it's the simplest thing in the world to use with smartphones, especially changing it. But even before then, they started to be things that changed over that way. So in the really early days, like the first days of Edgar and stuff, it was great because you had all this information and you could go and you could get it, you could print it out, you could read it, you could look at it there, but no one was like pulling all that information and putting it on websites themselves and stuff. That came a few years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah so access to the information is great and that's something that the internet does. Yeah. It's the pushing the information to you that you don't want. What do they say? Drowning in information but starving in wisdom? Yeah, and the, the difference between deep work and, and shallow work, a big part of it is that is shallow work, you're responding to information that's coming at you from other people usually, often, really often. So when we talk about things like checking your email, Twitter, things like that, that's almost like you're getting other people to bring you stuff and then you're just reacting to it that way instead of going out finding, I want to research this one stock, you know? Mm-hmm. It's a big part of it. It's very directed deep work in a way that that shallow work isn't. Do you set like time blocks for example where you say okay every single day i'm going and this is something mm-hmm. it's not see it's tough because a lot of people listening they probably have they have to check their email or whatever you know for their career or whatever yeah. but there's a lot of people i know that they'll say okay i'm going to dedicate one hour per day and that's the only time i'm going to allocate to check my email or you know stuff like that like do you have sort of any tricks or anything like that that you sort of add for your life like i read one off farnham street where i, I believe he said um that he won't respond to, he has like a two minute rule where he won't respond to it unless he can respond to it within two minutes. And if he can't respond to that email within two minutes, then he uses his, his allocated time later on, like, which is an hour or whatever he said. Yeah. To, to for do it. Email. I'm a weird example because I use email as a way to give very long responses, very long responses by email, Yes, which is how I create articles and things from that. So I can use the, that way I'm answering the questions that people want. Right. So it's almost like a call in show or whatever thing. And that's really how we do it. So uh, I would say that I do answer emails in blocks long time after they're sent. They're, they're people, it could take days before someone gets a response from me by email for that reason. Because, and when they do get a response, it could be 2,000 words. Because uh, if you're responding to your email all the time, you have to be working in a way to clear it out um, now. And that means you can never give a long response. You can never sit down and think up something that you're going to respond in a really long way to it. That's just not something that you could ever do if you're constantly answering your email. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just a separating how you do it. I mean, for me, email happens to be something that I use as a way to create ideas for investing stuff about things that people care about. So it's a way of me figuring out what people want to hear about, right? And so I have to separate that out as a completely different thing to take their question seriously. See, if you're responding to your email all the time, you're not taking the person's question seriously. You're thinking, what's the quickest way I can resolve this issue? True. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, that, you know. Sure. It's a, just a different kind of email, a different kind of attitude for it. Instead of, oh, let me think about what their question is and how best I can explain this concept or whatever. Totally different. So, yeah, I mean, emails that have to be answered that don't have to do with that, that aren't people asking investing questions, yeah, those can be answered in a completely different way. Yeah. But you can't mix up the two ideas, and that's the important thing. You can't think that reading a 10K is like using Twitter. It's, it's funny you say that because I was just thinking about I've seen a couple of your comments where you've commented back to people from Unfocused Compounding. Yeah. And I'm just like, gosh, how long did that take him to write that <laughs> comment back? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but how long do they have to wait for the response? Yeah, sure. So how do you think people can 
work to improve, um, you know, deep work in, in their investing life and also in their personal life, because obviously that transcends into, you know, improving your focus and that's going to help you in a lot of different areas. But if you had to, I guess, recommend certain ways. Yeah. So one is picking a specific task and defining it, like titling it. This is what you're going to work on. So for investing, this is, I'm going to work on, um, cheesecake factory. Okay. And then I think setting a time limit. The reason why I think setting a time limit is a really big part of it is that people always say, I don't have the time to do it, or I can't do it. I can't spend all this time focusing on everything. And then they realize, actually, you can use very small bits of time if you use them seriously. And so what you're thinking before you do it is, well, I don't know how long this will take. I don't know exactly how long it takes to do a 10K or something. But if you say, okay, I'm going to work on this for 60 minutes. Well, that's what your commitment is to it is for 60 minutes. And then after that, you can stop after 60 minutes and do whatever else there is in your life. You know how much time you have. What people don't want to do is pick up something and not have any idea how open-ended it is, right? No, I think that's great because, I mean, you think about it, you, if you block off an hour a day, mm-hmm. seven days, I mean, seven hours, that's, oh, yeah. and you could get quite far. I mean, if you think about how long does it typically take you to read a 10K, do you think? Uh, doing it that way definitely be done in two hour, in two days, yeah. So there's like, no way it could yeah, take more Yeah, so I'm hours, saying so yeah. about two hours is... No is, way it could take more, yeah. Yeah, so, so if you think about that, then you still have five days of doing other research or whatever. Right, and so what if it takes you seven the first time? Yeah. Okay, that's bad. But then, you know, <laughs> after doing it for a while, it, what you did in seven, you'll now be doing in three. Mm-hmm. That's what you do at your job. The first day you started whatever job you have, it probably took you t- two to four times longer than it takes a normal uh, experienced person at that job to do those tasks. But now that you've been doing it for a while, it becomes something that you do a lot faster. Yeah. And we always talk about that, how the more, I guess, companies you learn about, it it, it carries on mm-hmm. when you read like a new 10K or about a new business or whatever. You know, I, I always find myself where I'm like, oh, okay, I can figure out this situation a lot easier because this reminds me of a different business mm-hmm. that Absolutely. we've studied in the past. Yeah. And it's very helpful that way. Yeah. And, and you don't, a lot of the thing that's useful about the, what we're talking about, about deep work is not the uh, initial thing that you're doing. It's not that you'll necessarily be so much better at analyzing this one company, but you'll also learn a lot of things from this that will spill over into other stuff that you learn. It, it'll snowball really for you and you won't realize that it's happening. Like you'll learn that skill. It is something that really you, it's, people also talk about deliberate practice. And I think that deep work, what we're talking about is in that same category of things and it's not useful the other thing is like you cannot seriously focus on twitter for two hours you can't block out a time to do that and focus on it for two hours it will not hold your focus Mm -hmm. it just won't because it's not demanding enough work so if you do things if you set aside time an hour two hours whatever to seriously think about something you're going to do it because you're expecting yourself to focus on it in this way you're going to really push yourself to come up with some good ideas and to really understand what you're reading about in a different way. Not You can't take it in a very shallow way if you're trying to apply that kind of focus. It's not easy. You'll People will find that if you disconnect from other things and stuff and are sitting alone thinking about this thing, how um, difficult it is to stay focused, what, how serious that your sort of thinking becomes and how deep it becomes because you have a pretty... Uh, it's pretty easy to be bored with things. So by allowing yourself to be in a situation where you would be bored, most people would find reading a 10K to be boring. For it not to be boring, you have to be very seriously digging into it Mm -hmm. and really thinking about the connections with other things and stuff like that. You can't interact with something in like a really shallow, superficial sort of way and be engaged. It's not going to happen. You know, you can do that if you are doing multiple tasks. It's very easy to do all of them in a very superficial way and keep all your... 
a focus engage because you're splitting them across different things, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, if you were reading a 10K with another person there, yeah, it would be easy to do it in a very shallow way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. But if you're alone in a room for an hour, that you have to be digging into it in a pretty serious way. That's the only way it's going to keep your attention. And he talks about that in the book a little bit, how if you just sort of go into a room with nothing mm-hmm. that could distract you and just like a light and a table yeah. and, you know, just really break out, you know, some time that you could get so far. Absolutely. You'll go much further than you think with that. Because you'll realize uh, how off, how rarely um, for a lot of people ever they just sit and allow themselves to be bored. Yeah. So it's like, oh, but what if I don't feel like doing the 10K? What if I don't feel like, you know, whatever? You're going to do it because otherwise you're sitting there doing nothing. And it was one of the reasons why I switched from reading on my iPad. I know we talked about it to yeah. my Kindle is because there's no, no notifications coming through on the Kindle. And I know you could turn them off on the iPad, but I just know how I am. Yeah. And, you know, you could just be like, oh. Let me go check this or let me see if I got an email or whatever. Yeah. We've talked about before that I do 10 K's always on uh printout. Yeah. Yeah. Same. And I do them always away. I'm not working on them in front of the computer because everything else is on the computer. It's very easy to convince yourself while you're doing it. Oh, I need to look this thing up. I also have a calculator that I use a, a uh, actual calculator that I have nice. from not from the phone. Uh, from, exactly. Cause you have a calculator on your phone and you have a calculator on- online as well. So if you're on a computer or a um, phone all the time, then you could always have a calculator. So there's no point to having this calculator. Right. But the point is then you can use it when you're not using those things. Yeah. And I find it very useful that way. Yeah. That's interesting. No, <laughs> I think that's uh, I think that's great. And so you print out obviously all the, what about transcripts? Yeah, if I read transcripts, I also print them out. Yeah, that's true. Um, I print it a lot, but what I do is I don't read one transcript alone. See, that's the other thing. If I'm looking at a company, I only read transcripts so I'm serious about looking at the company, and then I read a lot of the past transcripts at once. So I'm printing it out. I'm reading like 100 pages of transcripts. I'm not reading 10 pages of transcripts ever, you know? Do you go from the most recent transcript or yeah, from I'll the past? Yeah, i from the most recent. And yeah. then you work your way backwards? Yeah, probably. Usually. Does it make more sense, you think, to go the other way around? Because then yeah. you can see what they said and mm-hmm. then... Absolutely. But the problem with that is it's difficult early on when you're studying a stock to know if it's really interesting enough. And the most recent 10K is going to give you some information about why the stock why the stock is down or you know things like that. Um, like, uh, I don't know. I think we'll talk about Bucks eventually on this, uh, Butler and National on this um, podcast. But that was one where if you don't read the most recent transcripts, it's hard to tell how interesting the stock is. And that's sure. typical. Like if a stock drops a lot or if there's some special situation or something, that's why you would read that way, you know. So that is, that is a problem with stock things. Often it's sort of a superficial engagement with the stock at first to decide if it's worth your time. Because there's so many more stocks than you could possibly research. Sure. So if you get a list of 10 stocks, you have to look at them in a very superficial way to decide which one I'm going to go deep on, right? But that's the one. But that's what you need to do quickly, pick that out, and really spend your time you know, engaging with one. That's what I, I always, I kind of say, okay, I'm going to spend like 30 minutes on this. And if it's still interesting, I'll spend maybe another 30 minutes. Yeah. And if it's still interesting, then it's like, okay, let's, let's go deep on it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way of doing it. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. And then, you know, obviously deep work and he talks about this in the book is, you know, it's, it's simple things too, where if your phone is on the table, for mm-hmm. example, and you like mine is right now, yeah. right. <laughs> As I'm recording this, um, if your phone is on the table and you're, you're researching or you're trying to have deep work, yep. you're really not in a deep work state because your brain is sort of thinking about, oh, did I get like a notification yep. or did somebody text me or did somebody call me or did somebody tweet at me? Do I have yes. a, a notification, mm-hmm. you know, on Twitter or whatever? Yeah. And a big part of it and, and why that happens, I think in a really big way is uh, because it's easier. So if you have the choice of doing a couple things and one of them is really easy and you can do now, 
your brain always wants to do that one. And that's a really big thing. I think I talked about this in other podcasts where it's like one of the most important things to talk about with, with someone about getting better at investing, about researching things and stuff is really stressing the difference between things that are urgent and things that are important. Because what people always do is they do the urgent thing, right? So they want to do, they're like, I need to do this now. But if they do that all the time, they're never going to do the actually important thing, which is like reading this 10K or something. Like, What do you mean the like, difference between urgent and what do you mean by that? So they're going to say, okay, oh, the stock moved a lot today. So I really have to look at this one. Okay, so they're, you know, this stock moved 15% because of some news item. So I got to learn about this news item and stuff. Well, actually, some stock is moving by 15% every day. There's yeah. some news item about it. And so then all you're doing instead is you're consuming and reacting to news quickly all the time instead of ever going and learning about this company deeply right but they're not wrong about that this is the one that's urgent right now this is the one where something's happening right now but there's always going to be something happening with it you know Mm -hmm. there's always going to be something to take your attention away from it and it's something that maybe has the highest payoff for your attention for it if something big happens with the stock today maybe 30 minutes with this stock that's moving a lot is better spent than spending a long time thinking about a stock that's at about the same price Mm -hmm. but then if you do that you never get to spend your time with a, a stock learning about it really deeply then you're someone who's always responding to the news. And and that's a big, big part of it. It's also true about things that, um, whether you write about for the site or that you read about, is the difference between are you reading things that are really newsworthy now or more timeless things. There's a temptation always to read about the things that are news now and kind of lose track of the site that actually there's always news happening. So if you do that, if you spend an hour reading news stuff instead of an hour reading a book, there's going to be another bunch of news about sure. other things tomorrow that can also take an hour of your time and yeah. so you'll never read books you'll only read news is that why you stopped reading the wall street journal yeah that's why i stopped reading news things to focus more on reading book things yeah because i found the payoff in the long term is better from reading books did you just you know come to the conclusion that whatever you'd read about in like newspapers or whatever it just didn't really affect like your investing decisions much or what yeah i actually found the, the bigger problem was sort of that the more you read news the more you want to read other news and so then it would just kind of spiral to become too much of your time spent on those sort of things. I didn't find it helpful, yeah. Uh, the best payoff on the time that I spent was like writing those singular diligence reports with Quan. So those are things where we focused pretty much on two stocks for a month. So we'd be at two stages and one stock in the early stages of learning about it and one stock uh, really wrapping up. Here's the report on it, right? Because it was, was it once a month that you guys sent that once out? Once a month, but okay. you have to prepare for a month next researching one. Yeah. the one, next one you're going to write. So kind of you're in the early stages of picking a stock, right? And then you're in, so at most we would have a group of stocks we were looking at, a stock that we thought we were going to do next month, and then writing up the actual stock we're doing this month. And right? all these reports are on the website. Yeah, saying. they're all on the Focus Compounding website. Nice plug. Yeah. But, um, and, and, and so that's a good example though, because uh, those, those, are pay, those reports are over 10,000 uh, 10, words. <laughs> um, and they're really long. And uh, I wanted to replicate much of what I do and what Quan does when researching things for ourselves and, and say, okay, well, let's just do it like we're doing this purely for ourselves and then share it with other people. And so that's what we did. It's not that we thought people would want to read things that long. And several times someone said, oh, I read, I got your report, read it, I bought the stock. Um, I'm a third of the way through or something. So they, they bought the stock before reading the whole report. And that gives you an example of how much... Uh, how hard it is to get someone to spend that much time with it. And and report, that's 10,000 words, whatever, what is that, 30 or 40 minutes that it would take them yeah, to read it? Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's a good example of the kind of stuff that we would do. And it's so good of an example of how, if you read those reports, they 
become useful in learning about other things. I actually had someone email just recently that they're interested in the um, uh, front door spinoff. So that's uh, you want to talk about that spinoff? You got it. All right. So it's a spinoff, and um, part of it will be involving a company that's involved in home warranty stuff. And I had written up a company several years ago. It's almost five years ago now. Um, American Home Shield. So American Home Shield is a spinoff. Yeah, yep. it, it will have a different name, but that's what it is. It's mm-hmm. American Home Shield, and um, and it's being split off from a company where the other side will really be Terminix. Terminix, which yeah. is the pest control. Yeah, and yeah. the article you're referencing is um, HomeServe. Yeah. So the, what I'm talking about is I wrote up a report on HomeServe, which is a, a UK-based company, also does business in the US and some other countries, and um, is involved in things similar to the home warranty business. So it's involved in, really in in uh, insuring plumbing-related stuff, but um, if you read the report on HomeServe, you're really well prepared, uh, really well prepared for the spinoff um, with Front Door, and that's often true. That's very often true. So if you read some report about some restaurant stock or something, it helps so much in learning about the next one. If you read about uh, America's Car Mart or something, that helps so much in learning about other subprime auto things. Um, and so when we do these reports, there's just so much uh, like deep work that goes into it that pays dividends not so much even just in learning about this one stock but it teaches you so much about things that you're going to use with other stocks Mm -hmm. and the way you're able to make like quick decisions about stocks and now is usually because you learn about stocks like them in some way in the past really deeply that's almost always how it happens like when people talk about how could you make a decision about the stock so quickly and everything it's really because i looked at things that in some way are really similar to it really deeply a while ago, sometimes a really long time ago. It could there are cases that are seventeen, eighteen years ago of stocks I looked at. And Any case like that recently? Uh, did I have a case like that? I recently? mean, that you could talk about. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I I don't think so. Let me think. Um, Putting you on not, the spot. No, not really recently. I would say no, not really recently. No. Um, but but those yeah those are really useful ones. Uh, I mean we did ones on banks and we did like five different banks since because of spending deep work and especially what happened is we would spend several times more time on the first one in the series than the fifth. Sure. But that's what it takes to like really understand each of those regional banks and then we thought we had a good understanding of regional banks or you know uh, we did one about progressive and and so it helps with the understanding of different insurers and things like that. How did you guys decide which companies to choose for the singular diligence? That part was hard, but we had a. We, what we did is we had a ten stocks that we ordered, of which ones we liked the best, and, and did it that way. Which people could do for themselves too. Yeah, no, no, no we did that. So we, it actually, we start with number zero, which is the one we think we're going to do next. We do this a, a very similar thing for yeah, the managed accounts. Very similar, and um, and and that's what you do of what you think you're going to do next. And a good way to do that is because then if you want to decide to research a new stock or put in a new stock you have to bump it in front of other stocks. So you're talking in terms of opportunity cost. You're saying, okay, well, I'm moving this one up from uh, a stock that I just learned about now that this exists, right? And I have to put it in front of something else. So let's say you're interested in the front door spinoff or something. Okay, well, do you, so Service Master. So Service Master is a split off. Is that interesting you more than Honeywell? Is that interesting you more than KLX? Well, then does it go in front of those? Which order are they in? And it really helps instead of just, like for a lot of people, it's like, I just heard about this stock, so I need to go research it now. And then you forget about the other ones that you have. So it's really good to come up with a list to order them. Yeah. But I mean, that's still sort of along the lines of improving your deep work. Oh, absolutely. When you structure yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Because the danger that most people have, or most people that I talk to about investing things, if they have 10 ideas, 
eventually their attention gets fragmented between the 10 ideas. So they're like, I'm looking at this idea, but I'm also looking at this idea. I'm kind of in the early stages of this one, but, but this is pretty interesting. Maybe I'll drop this halfway through because I really want to do this one. Instead of having a list that says, look, if you want to do this stock that badly, you have to admit to yourself, I like this better than this other one and put it in front of it. And so you really have to see what you're pushing out of the way, um, what you're, you're deciding not to put your attention on for this thing that you are giving your attention to. Yeah. And that's also a good way to sell as well. When you talk about like yeah. opportunity costs, right. Yeah. And the way to think about it is really only cause you wrote an article, have your sell decisions ever, mm-hmm. um, have added or detracted from your performance and you concluded whenever you, you sold just to raise cash, right. Yeah. That it actually didn't affect your performance in a positive Absolutely, way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for the, um, singular diligence, what we did in a big way, and also why I think that's true with the sell decisions, is that we would order them largely on the basis of how interested we were in the business. So if we had a business that we really liked, but we didn't love the price on it, that could still somehow get to the top. But companies where we really didn't like the business, but the price was okay, those rarely ever got to the top. Because we felt that understanding a business really well, having a really good understanding of a business you like, an industry you might like, you know, on the early stages... Um, that pays dividends longer term because now you really understand this business or this industry and it's really attractive to you. The home service is a good example. We loved the industry that it was in. And now here's a spinoff and it's interesting because it's in that same industry. Like what, two or three years later? Mm-hmm. When did you write the report? Yeah. That one's five years later. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And that happens all the time. That, because the basic things about what makes a company um, attractive, the economics of it are, are very, they're very basic and they're very long lasting. So, I mean, look at Warren Buffett. When did he write that security I like best is Geico one? Yeah. And when he was, was 21 years old. Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking about something that how much did the economics of Geico really change in all those decades? So mm-hmm. it was useful to him to understand Geico so deeply so early on. And that's but, true for a lot of stuff. And that also though, you could apply that though, like you talked about to other businesses as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, yeah. that helped him know a lot about insurance, which became a big thing for, for Berkshire Hathaway for a mm-hmm. long time. Yeah. I mean, there's not that many different areas that he had to learn about, right? Like he became an expert on insurance or on uh, consumer brands or on media, right? But you take those, the media and advertising, he, he was interested in too. Um, but you take those things, which he was learning at whatever pace, they account for a huge part of Berkshire's overall performance, right? Yeah, Just sure. a few categories and you can come up with that because but you think about this and you're like, oh, well, Buffett probably doesn't understand insurance and brands and things about it as well as anyone. But then there's lots of other things he did where he probably doesn't understand them much better than other people. But how much did that really account for versus the areas where he was really focused and, and had these insights? Mm-hmm. You know, like float. If you really understood flow better than other people, that's a useful thing to know years and years later. It's just like, I mean, concentration. We talk about focus and everything mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then from learning about certain stocks, you just keep applying that same idea. Like with um, singular diligence, even those reports, they're bro- broken down further. So it's not a report that's 10,000 words. Each report is broken down into a specific area. Yeah. And what's useful about that is then you learn about that thing. So like durability is one of the first ones, right? Well, then we've done 20 times assessing a business's durability. So you start to become better at quickly assessing, is this a business that will last forever or not, right? Like we were talking about a business recently where I was saying, you know, it, um, it, what interested me about it is that it's a business that is unlikely to have a competitor put within about 150 miles of it for various reasons, all right? 
So that becomes immediately really interesting mm -hmm. because most businesses, someone's going to open a competing branch within 150 miles at some point. Yeah. So it becomes really interesting in terms of like the DCF of it. Is this something that 10, 20, 30 years from now will still be producing the same sort of EBITDA and stuff? And it might be if nothing's around it. Well, we've looked at plenty of businesses where location is such a big advantage that way, right? And so you become, they seem like totally different businesses, Right, it could be that you're looking at NACA or you're looking at US Lime or something like that. And that becomes something that is helpful in learning about other things where you might not have something really close ever a uh, really close competitor ever put in. So the location becomes such a huge advantage. And it's useful to understand that. And that's why we put it in our checklist too. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean that those things are in there for that reason. I mean, we built that checklist around in large part around the categories of singular diligence. It was, it was all yeah, pretty much yeah. around it. Yeah. But so some of them are like capital allocation is a good one. I spent a lot of time doing like thinking I'm going to think about this company's capital allocation specifically. And so when you break it down even further into focusing on specific things, there's a lot of people I've talked to who don't think about capital allocation in terms of how it drives the returns long-term in their stock. So they'll say, do I like management or not? Yes or no. Do I like the dividend? Is it buying back stock? Okay, they think about it that way. But they're not really thinking, okay, how much does this affect it the way this company is likely to allocate capital? But we did that for every company that we looked at. And so that starts to be part of the investment analysis right away instantly you you and that's what deep work does i think because you spend a lot of time thinking about capital allocation it becomes an instantaneous reflex to start thinking in terms of capital allocation mathematically about how this is going to affect me okay so how much stock are they oh, last 10 20 years how much stock have they diluted this how much of a drag is that going to be on me as an investor right so you're going to go oh well facebook is costing me a one and a half percent or something you know whereas other people might never look at that mm-hmm it becomes just a reflex to automatically do it because when you spend time doing deep work on something, it becomes something that you can see automatically and, and your brain will start doing it with a lot of different uh, companies that you look at right away if it's something you focus on for a long time in the past. We're just gaining so much experience. Yeah, but if it's something that you haven't focused on, uh, you don't do it that way. That's, it's, it's, it becomes something that it, it's easy to overlook, right? So it's if you've done this thing where you've looked specifically in a really deep way, you start to have... Um, pretty strong opinions about capital allocation mm -hmm. and and about and um and and relating it directly to your returns and stuff. Same thing with durability and stuff. It's not like you just think in a general concept about moats or whatever, but you're thinking, okay, well, how does that really drive returns here? Because you've had experience in companies that had moats, and then they didn't work out that well or whatever, right? Because you're gonna with these sorts of things, you're gonna spend a lot of time on a company, thinking you understand it and everything, and then it's not gonna perform well. And that's part of, okay, so that's going to question some of your beliefs about things and how they, they may not work out and stuff like that. So, I mean, we did a lot of research on, um, there's a single diligence report on uh, Babcock and Wilcox before the spinoff. We did a lot of work on this uh, company, really liked BWX Technologies, which has gone on to be a successful stock. But the other part of the business, which was the coal part of the business, went on to be very not successful. And it's interesting to go back, read that report and see what things we got wrong about why that turned out to be such a disaster. And we didn't see them. And that's the second time that I did things like that because I did a lot of work on Barnes & Noble and the same thing happened. So, What happened there? In both cases, the, the company was facing an existential threat, right? And instead of slowly shrinking, they rolled the dice, went all in on something that they hadn't done before. So in Barnes & Noble, they went all in with on nook, the nook. Right? Yeah. All in on the nook. And with... Um, with Babcock and Wilcox to the side that was the coal side, they tried to diversify away from coal in a huge way. 
and um, they lost a lot of money doing like waste of energy and things like that in other countries. The really good part of the business that was going to shrink over time was doing maintenance on U.S.-based coal power plants. And if you look, it, that business didn't change that much. Like our estimates about that business, what it's worth and everything, they're pretty accurate to now what it is and when we looked at it. But they managed to lose a lot of money on everything else. Yeah. you know. So you can do all this work on things and not see certain issues with that, right? Mm-hmm. And in both cases with, with those, we did a lot of work seeing what we thought some business was worth. But it's the capital allocation of what they do. And in, and in both those cases, they wanted to stay relevant and they wanted to grow and all that stuff. And they didn't want to um, quietly shrink the business over time, right? And then what, what do you think happened with the Nook? Was it just competition from the iPad and the Kindle? or They're not a software co- They're not yeah. a hardware <laughs> company. I mean, they, they had bookstores. Yeah. You know? The Nook and, was kind of a crappy product, too, I thought. Yeah, but everyone else lost, too. Yeah. I mean, they weren't wrong. Like, for instance, um, so Amazon was successful doing that. But a bunch of companies that had lots of experience, Sony, uh, HP was interested in it, some other c- companies, put a lot of work and money into it, too. And it's not like Barnes & Noble failed worse than those companies did, but they still failed. Um, but it's not it's fundamentally not what the business that they were in. And I, it would be boring getting into why Babcock and Wilcox, what they did. Uh, it's just not as visible to people as the Nook. But the same sort of thing. They weren't using their expertise on things that were really predictable. Um, they were d- doing engineering that was more um, likely to have problems they didn't foresee. And that's what happened. But that happens all the time with those engineering things. But but that can also happen with things like retail or something. I mean, if you know, with with Barnes and Noble, they've over time started to do some other things. Like they said, okay, well, why don't we sell some toys in our stores? Why don't we uh, do restaurants in our stores? Things like that that are closer, I think, to what it is that the company actually does, right? Which they're like, okay, we're a retailer. We know things about leasing the right spaces, about creating a environment that people like. I mean, years ago, people loved. Um, Barnes and Noble locations as like a place to hang out, and so they created a real atmosphere there, which is you know the kind of thing that Coffee Starbucks goes like for that, in, yeah. uh, in in um, uh, restaurant stuff in fast food is what Barnes and Noble had uh, in those places and in cities and things. Yeah, Barnes and Noble was uh, a oasis to hang out in, and so they could have said, okay, let's look at our company that way, and what can we do, right? What do we know, and what can we do? But like, what functions that Barnes and Noble had done had anything to do with? that's had anything to do with creating a uh, hardware product sure yeah yeah so um which is when you see a lot of companies that sort of flop on stuff it's mainly because of that i would say they go sort of outside of their normal course of work or competency or whatever and it's okay to try those things out in a little way i mean amazon fails at everything but they fail in a little way on everything and then they scale up big the few successes they have right um google's another good example google's probably failed at absolutely Every, yeah. everything imaginable they've tried. But we only hear about, that. of course, we only hear about, though, yeah. the major successes. Yeah. yeah, but you try some products, and they probably didn't have very big teams working on them after a while, and they don't support them anymore. And, uh, and you know, so, but if they have a few, few big successes, then, you know, that's something that, that makes all the money, and, and it's fine. And um, the, when you look at these companies, so it's not like it's unpredictable. The work that we did on understanding Barnes & Noble and on understanding Babcock & Wilcox was useful. Um, but there'll always be things where you have you're wrong about things that you do, even when you look at them in a very deep way. Now there is an argument with stocks that spending a lot of time researching something is a bad idea because you'll become committed to that idea and want to buy that stock and believe in it in a big way just because you know so much about it, instead of having confidence in something not necessarily because you know a lot about it, but because it's good. So what do you think? Is that a risk? 
I mean, yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's a lot of people that say that. Yeah. See, I wonder about that. I don't know. Because I did. I think six, it comes. I did single diligence. We did. I don't know, twenty five issues or something. Yeah. I only bought two of the stocks. I was going to say, <laughs> how many of those did you buy? Yeah. So I wrote two hundred fifty thousand words and bought two stocks. So I don't know. Is that hard though? You think? No. <laughs> Not for me. No. I mean, I feel like it'd be hard for a lot of people, like to. I mean, but were you you were suggesting the stock, but you didn't buy it yourself. Correct. At the end, I would. I mean, I tried to always. I didn't talk about whether I would. Did be you guys keep track of how many of those stocks worked out? Yeah, so that's interesting. And we had a lot of people who bought specific ones. Um, so we did keep track of some of that stuff. Um, and uh, it's interesting, I would say. Um, what's clear from what we did is the stocks that we said we liked a lot better than the other stocks worked out a lot better. So um, we clearly knew that we couldn't do one a month (laughs) and be right about it. Sure. So like, for instance, when we said, uh, so I'll give the two examples is BWX technologies. We said, this is the widest moat stock we've ever done. That's like the conclusion to that one. And for us, we said, this is the best stock, (laughs) right? (laughs) And both of them have done incredibly well well after that. So, um, whereas we didn't say that about all the others, we, we, we said positive things about them and stuff. And they're the best thing we could do at the time. We always did the one that we thought was the best at the time, but it is true that, we were able to separate the nine out of 10 that we thought, mm, you know, they're, yeah. they're the best we could do from the two that we said, Oh, these are really, you know, great. But also we were right about that, like industry. So like I said, regional banks, we kept saying, we picked five or six of them. Uh, we picked six, but we just got so tired of doing them. We didn't do the sixth. <laughs> but we picked five of them and we did them one, uh, one month. We would do a stock that wasn't a bank. And then we would do a stock that was a bank. We spaced them out because we figured people would get bored and we'd have cancellations because people are saying, you can't just recommend another U.S. regional bank over and over again. But you can tell from that we were saying, buy U.S. regional banks, <laughs> yeah. right? Did anyone draw that conclusion? Yeah. An email and they all you? did fine. Yeah. And I mean, they kind of did the correct order in that the banks that we liked the best did better than the other ones. But you could have just bought all of those banks or probably a lot, just regional banks in the U.S. in general and done really well compared to any other kind of investment you could have done. So, and that's true. I, yeah. So there is definitely, I think you can tell your great ideas from your good ideas better than people think. Sure. I mean, when I, I wrote a blog post where I said, buy Japan, I don't think I've never written a blog post that was like buy this particular country or, or whatever that way. But I was like, there are net nets in Japan that you want to buy. And it took a lot of work to go do it. But when you have an idea that you're like, um, I need to learn all about Japanese stocks and things so that I can carry out the trades you know that it's a really exciting idea that you have. Sure. Yeah. And those worked out. And But the particular stocks I picked didn't matter, and other people who did the same thing um, had the same sort of success, I think. It'd be interesting to see if you could do like a follow-up, like a five years later thing on singular diligence, singular diligence or whatever. What stocks see. worked out and what didn't? Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting one because you have ones in there like Weight Watchers. Yeah. Which went, yeah, uh, dropped 90% or so from where we picked it. Not yeah. quite 90, but close. And then uh, now is more than double the price at which we picked it. You know? Yeah. That'd be an interesting post. Yeah. There was another site that was similar to that. It had some experience. We'll see how it, it turns out over time. Fossil. Oh, yeah. yeah. And for, with both of them, we said these are really, like we talked about how risky these are versus other stocks that we picked. Mm-hmm. That's the interesting thing when you go back and look at these things that you do this deep work on. It's really funny to see how you do all this research and stuff. You're so often right about the things that you're saying. So the facts that you put out, the captions that it says in each thing, the titles that you put on stuff are so accurate to what actually happens. Yeah. But it's the decision-making that matters, right? And so you may have bought the stock and it performed badly, but you actually said this is a riskier stock, you know, but then you went ahead and you bought it anyway, right? 
where you said this is a wide most like like BWX Technologies. I said this is the widest moat that I've ever seen. And then I went and I bought a normal size position in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I bought it, you know, I would do 20% positions, 5 20% positions, and that's what I did. Yeah. Why sure. didn't I buy 40%? Yeah. Frost, I said, this is the best stock that I, you know, around now. This is definitely the best. 20% position, not and you, 40. And Why? You, you think that's good, too, for people to do when they go back? So when after they study a stock and spend all that time doing deep work mm-hmm. to write up a little post for themselves, I guess. Oh, you yeah, could say, tell people that all the time with blog posts. Absolutely, yeah. that's how you do it. That's what I think people should do is go do deep work on a stock for like a week or something. Or it could be a month. If you have real time constraints and stuff like that, that's fine. I mean, one thing about deep work, though, is you do have to do it in intense um, focus periods. So like you can do an hour a day. You cannot do 10 minutes a day for a month. There's no way to do that. That just doesn't work. So I think that people want that idea and it's just not going to work you're going to need an hour a day or something now if you do an hour once a week that's fine you don't have to work on it every day but yeah so i think do that and put a blog post up about it and then you go back and you learn about it what you said it's so much more interesting to see what you said what you got right and wrong on something that you did deep work on than on something superficial that's how you learn too yeah whether you were right or wrong on the superficial stuff, when you go back and read about it, there's nothing interesting there about it. I've seen ones like that where someone made a great stock pick. It turned out great. But you go back and you read about it, and they had a very superficial view of it and things like that, and it worked out. You can sometimes recognize really cheap things or something like that and just buy it on a dip that's temporary or whatever. Um, But there's not a lot there to learn from it, where sometimes there's a lot to learn even from deep work that you did on things that didn't work out that well. And uh, th- those are always interesting. And those reports are interesting to me, uh, going back and reading them and w- ch- always trying to find something there for things that are uh, out around now. Like Fossil is a really good example because Fossil, some of the things we talked about are fashion-related things and the risks there. And there's constantly businesses that have fashion risks that you have to look into today. And the other thing that we had about that is like rent and rent coverage and stuff. And that was true for a couple stocks that we did, how important that is. And I've talked a lot to people about looking at fixed charge coverage and stuff because of how important that was to a few of the stocks that we looked at the leverage involved in retail type businesses. Um, and that's something that you get because we had to kind of look at that for those companies. You know, if a company had a lot of rent or if they had a lot of fashion risk, we had to look into it. Um, and you know, it, I, I think, I mean, I learned a lot from deep work on stocks like that. I, for instance, I mentioned fossil. I never liked fossil that much as a stock. That was more, uh, the co-author on, on, on that one. Um, and there were some that I liked more than he did, but uh, it was great doing a lot of work on it and learning a lot about it. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you would never buy it for yourself, but no, obviously from the you very beginning, I it. said, this is not a stock that I would buy for myself, but I think we can write it up. Yeah. It's interesting. So the main takeaways mm-hmm. to conclude it yeah. for people to, to add to their investor toolkit is to go in a room alone, right? Turn the phone off, turn the computer off probably print stuff out. And that's the reason why we do it is because it's not because we're going to get some sort of superior insights or anything like Mm -hmm. that. It's to just be able to focus more. I mean, that's why I do it because I know I'll probably go like ESPN or or something like that. Well, we should talk about that. We should talk about you more with this, with deep work because you have a job that takes up a lot of your time each day. Yep. Right. And, um, it would be hard to find big chunks of time to work on, um, those sorts of things. I mean, examples, I talked about singular diligence. Well, singular diligence was, I thought, successful in doing those reports because the two people involved could put in a lot of deep work because Quan was able to do it as a student, which is very easy to do deep work. 
as being a student in college that's is incredibly did. different yeah. from from um, uh, from having a day job, which is very time consuming, mm-hmm. right? Sure. So how do you do deep work, and how is it important to you? Well, for me, the way that I do it is I kind of block off. I'm more of a work late at night type of person. Okay. I think for me that kind of works because there's no emails coming through. You know, there's no mm-hmm. distractions. Um, you know, so and I know that I am the way that I am. You know, I was watching a video and Guy Spear was talking about he has a, a room in his office, I believe it was, where it's just a reading room. There's yeah. clocks on the wall, mm-hmm. the, like a, a, a regular normal clock. That's right. it. There's no TVs. There's no computers. And he strategically did that because he just wanted to be sort of like a focus room. Mm-hmm. So for me, I have like a focus room in my house okay. where there's nothing in there mm-hmm. and it's just there's no distractions. And um, so I sort of, you know, do that, but it's really blocking off an hour or an hour and a half each night sort of when I'm done Mm -hmm. with a lot of stuff from the day and just kind of, you know, dive deep in that regard. That's how it is for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, it'll be different, obviously being able to do that all day long, but Mm -hmm. when you have another job, it obviously would be tough. I I wouldn't get a lot out of it if I was studying a company at like 11 o'clock in the morning or or 1 PM because I'm, you know, there's just so much other stuff going on because you're in the middle of doing other work. And yeah, that would, yeah, sure. And and especially for like the managed accounts, a right. lot of like what I deal with is a lot of other stuff. So you don't have to deal with it, right. like with talking with clients and mm-hmm. and you know, I guess the marketing arm of it or compliance, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just it's sort of different in that regard. Yeah, yeah. And most people are doing jobs, as I said in in that book, deep work, that require a lot of time spent on things um, that are not deep work. And the hard part that I found mm-hmm. is when it's eight o'clock at night and yeah. you just, you've been up since seven thirty mm-hmm. or seven or what time you get up right? and maybe you go to the gym. So mm-hmm. you, you know, exert energy doing that. And then it's, you know, comes eight o'clock at night. It's, it's actually doing the work. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's actually, okay, we're going to have a very productive session because we've talked about blocking off an hour or an hour and a half and mm-hmm. only doing it an hour and an hour and a half because it's so mentally draining, right? Yeah. Especially when you're trying to learn about a new business that you've never learned about before. It can be very tough. Mm-hmm. So we've met together at different times and places. Uh, what, where do you think was most useful in terms of time and place that our sessions were the most effective? See, I thought when we would meet early in the morning, early I would morning. say, yeah, because at the end of the day, right. I'm just kind of trained, you know, yeah, I from, that. from work. I mean, I so how early do we meet? We would meet at like what five thirty, right? Five thirty. Yeah. So there's a few things about that. for three hours, five thirty, five thirty for three hours, and we met in a small office yeah. with nothing in there, <laughs> nothing in there. Yeah. And so there are some advantages to that. Um, one, you're you. I mean, you're not exhausted from the day. I guess people can be tired at five thirty in the morning. Certainly, that you don't get enough sleep. Yeah. But pump um, that coffee. But the other thing is you you haven't started anything else, and that's and I what think it that's is. Part of it because I could drink coffee later at night, obviously, right. but you. I'd get like a brain fog. Like, oh, I just, you've yeah. thought so much well, about the day. Well, you talked about, what was the book? Um, why, why We, we Sleep. sleep. Yeah. yeah, Why We Sleep. So, um, yeah, I think people are more impaired than they think after whatever, 16, 17 hours. Definitely. But yeah, yeah. of being up. Yeah. You get the brain fog, you can't even think straight, can't remember. Yeah. yeah. No, the, but people don't like hearing what we're saying, which is get up first thing in the morning working on something is the yeah. most useful. But yeah, um, uh, actually, there was a, uh, a novelist uh, is since passed away, but um, who had, I thought, a really good method of working, which is that um, he would start actually writing. Okay, so he'd have actual writing, not outlining, not thinking about it, whatever. He had to have actual writing. Uh, he had to have a little bit of that going. I forget if he had to have a page or half a page or whatever before he was allowed to put the coffee on. 
Really? And then after that, there wasn't much of a schedule or anything. But he got into the serious part of actually writing his novel every day before he was allowed to put that coffee on. Interesting. I, that's probably a pretty effective way of doing uh, serious work about There's it. actually a lot of studies that show um, if you don't drink coffee like right when you wake up, yeah. that it's more effective. Oh. I've read that before. Yeah, that's probably true. So sometimes what I'll do is I, I, I'll get up and then I don't drink caffeine until I get to the office, which is probably like okay. 40 yeah, minutes after I wake sense. up, yeah. 40 minutes to an hour. Yeah. So, I mean, so that's a separate thing about, you know, having plenty of sleep and everything is obviously helpful for these things. But also, if you haven't started anything else, I think that's helpful. It's really hard for people. People always have this idea that, like, somehow they can fit in deep work stuff in the middle of a day that's filled with all sorts of other work or in the middle of stuff that have other people's, um, that they have commitments to other people on their time or that other people can come in and bring them whatever problems and stuff, which can happen to, depending on what kind of job you have, what kind of family life you have, people can be bringing you problems at either one. Yeah. Um, and you have to deal with them. And so there's no way to avoid that. But I think that's another big thing is not to switch tasks from one to the other. You know, it's really hard to be like, okay, you're at work or whatever. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to close my door now and I'm going to focus on this for an hour. Yeah, it's too tough. Yeah. Because you are engaged with this other stuff and that's on your mind and everything, you know? So I think that's probably what, because a lot of people probably work. Mm-hmm. And what I had a lot of success with is just maybe like what Munger says, sell yourself an hour a day, get in a little bit earlier. Yeah, I remember working. Suck some, it up. Yeah, I remember working someplace where, um, <laughs> not that it makes a lot of sense, but I would go in early to do the work, which is basically the work that I was paid to do. But that way I would do the work before other people, including my boss, got in there. And so that, you're just trying to suck up, weren't you? I was just trying to suck up. So, but that way you would have that the stuff that most needed to get done actually required deep work that I was doing, right? And so once you're in, once other people can come in, and of course your boss can tell you to work on this or that or the other thing, then the thing that's most important actually gets pushed aside, right? And you end up just spending a lot more time on it. Whereas if you did some of that work right away, it was a lot more effective. But of course, it's a really weird thing that you're going into an office to be in an office alone, which an office is meant to be a bunch of different people working together is the whole point of why they're renting it. But uh, yeah, I actually found that most effective. But you'd be surprised though how effective it can be. Like if you go in your office and no one has their TVs on, no one's on yeah. the phone, no one, it's just pure silence. And mm-hmm. you're just pure focusing on whatever it is that you're doing. And then yeah. if you were to do that when everyone is in the office, people are walking around. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's completely night and day. Yeah. I, I found that to be true. And of course, obviously. I, That's why I like to work e- like either early in the morning or late at night. Yeah, and we met in an office early in the morning, which was not far from where I lived. Mm-hmm. So certainly we could have met where I lived, but there are disadvantages to that. Yeah, sure. You know, disadvantages to me someplace at 5.30 in the morning there. And I think that's, I think there are disadvantages to working and uh, trying to do deep work where you live. But when we would meet, though, at 5.30, yeah. we were the only ones in the whole office building. Yeah, we, <laughs> we were the only ones in that whole office yeah, building. Yeah, like 8.30 would come around and you start to hear other people on the phones and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And it was completely different. Yeah. But, I mean, we tried do, working at Starbucks and things. And at 5.30, you can do that. Yeah. But at 8 o'clock at a Starbucks. Yeah, coming in. <laughs> oh, boy, yeah. that's hard. Yeah, yeah. It's totally different. And so yeah, that's a big part of deep work, though, is being able to focus on something there. Um, and so, some of those maybe is that the, you know that that is um, precious time that you have. Mm-hmm. Right? If you're meeting once a week for three hours, okay, and that's the only time that's going to be completely quiet and that you're being 100% focused on this thing, that does put an importance on it motivate you to really do some serious work during that time in a way that like trying to fit it in on the shoulders of your work day or whatever on other um, days, it makes it like, you know, I mean, you spend a lot, you spend 40 hours in an office. It doesn't become, 
it's like it's not as precious at this time that you know this is really important that you have whereas if you meet for three hours a week that's all you're getting all week i think that also has a motivating factor for people i'm sure no, like, like we were talking about where if you're alone in an office and then you know people are coming in i think that motivates people that this isn't my time to really get a lot of serious work done no i think that's great so yeah. read the book deep work yeah. cal newport mm-hmm. it's an incredible book didn't you write a blog post so that you actually didn't like the book I like, Who I think every, <laughs> I, if we, I don't think we want to get into this because I don't want to say anything bad about anyone. <laughs> you you tried to get me to say bad things about uh, Ken Fisher on a previous <laughs> podcast and now you want me to say bad things about this author. I love the concept of the book. Got it. I think the book is tremendously useful for people to read. I recommend reading the book. All right. I, that's it. Let's just leave it there. <laughs> I read the book. said other things, but they didn't have anything to do with Read the, the book. book was worth reading. Read the book. If you can, go to your podcast app. Give us a review on iTunes. Hopefully, yes. it's good. Um, also, follow us on Twitter, at Focus Compound, okay. or Compound, and then uh, at Jeff Gannon. Mm-hmm. Um, also, if you do want to get access to Jeff's weekly memo that he does send out, yeah. um, go to FocusCompound.com, and on the homepage, you'll see a spot to enter in your email. Yes. You'll get but, a memo from Jeff once a week. Yeah, but everyone here should know that Andrew is most concerned with people re, um, rating and reviewing the podcast in iTunes. I am. That it would be the thing that would make it most I'm going to be kind of scared to open up that app and see what people are saying. <laughs> but no, yes, right. that would be great because that helps spread the word. Yeah, that Other than that, the most. thank you very much, everyone. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.